We're on page 992 of your pew Bible. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Pray with me, please. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you with a prayer of thanksgiving. We thank you for the for the one elder that we do have in this church, Father, and we, we pray for, for more elders and deacons in our church. We thank you for the for the elders in our in our sister churches that, that help pastor us. We thank you for the elders and the deacons in the faith that have come before us that have held up your standards, Father. Thank you that you gave us men that faithfully served you. Father, we just we ask that uh, as Pastor Cody comes up to deliver your word, that we would have ears that hear your word faithfully, ears that listen to your word and put it into practice, Father. Father, we thank you for, for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for this country that we live in that we're able to freely share your word, freely worship you. We ask that you be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a delight again to open the word of God with you as we look at First Timothy chapter 3. And as Warren has read for us, we're taking a look at 8 through 13. The qualifications of a deacon is the title of my sermon, and the way I want to go about this is to spend time looking at these qualifications, but that will be later on. We want to first set this up. I want to spend a good amount of time, I think, actually, in an introduction. It's an odd thing to me, almost on a weekly basis, that if there's one thing that the world hates seemingly hates, though it's this that they hate is, is all over the place. It's hypocrisy. And so we call out people constantly on the news for saying one thing and then doing another. And yet everyone knows that we are hypocrites. Every person ever been born, past, present, future, that, that, that's part of our DNA as it as it would be with sinners. We're, we're hypocrites. And yet the world hates hypocrites. And so it's no wonder then that oftentimes one of the, the biggest impediments to someone coming to church is the fact that someone in their family claimed to be Christ, claimed to be a Christian and, and did not live that way. They were a hypocrite. They abused them in some way, shape, or form. Or what they saw them do on Sunday morning was not what they saw them do on Monday through Saturday evening. And they know that 
If that's what a Christian is, they want none of it. We oftentimes talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will proclaim it until Christ returns. Of the the changing power of Jesus Christ to take sinners and transform them. And this, and this gospel is, uh, is good news. Because there is no one good, Romans tells us. No, not one. Psalm 14 says the same thing. And another passage in, in scripture as well. There is no one good, no, not one. So here we are as, as, as wretches. And as I told a man yesterday, oftentimes we're just trying to get to wretch status. <laughs> wretches it seems to be too good oftentimes. There is no one good, no not one, and, and we, we need, intrinsically, we know where, where everyone knows we're not what we should be if we have any desire of eternity, of eternity in heaven rather than eternity in hell. And we oftentimes, in our lost state, we spend years, if not a lifetime, spending Ways, spending time trying to find ways to appease our souls that somehow we may be better than that person or that person or that person and therefore we're now qualified to go to heaven based upon the fact that we're better than that person. Or that I didn't do what those people did. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us we, we live under, we live in a world controlled by a perfect and holy God and that there is no one like him and that he is righteous and that he is just and that he is wonderful beyond any wonder and that he is beautiful beyond any beauty. And the best that we have to offer is the beauty that you see all around you. The fact that there is no human being Created exactly like every other human being. Attributes to the glory and the wonder and the majesty of God. And then we will spend eternity. And for those saved in Jesus Christ. We will spend eternity in heaven. Needing eternity to know an eternal God. How do we understand this? We don't. But we do live in faith and we've been gifted enough understanding to delight in this and recognize that the work of Jesus Christ, and what I mean by that is his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his ruling and reigning now and promise to return, has power, we don't understand, to change people To take them from what they are now to something that they cannot be in and of themselves. And that is right before God. So when we we speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to ask the question. Do you actually believe that the gospel has power to change people? Now I wrestle with that question every Sunday morning. And every Monday through Saturday. Do I actually believe that what I preach from the word of God... Actually has power to change you. Not by how I say it or what I say. But the truth that is there. Of Jesus Christ coming to earth. Sent by God the Father. To shed his perfect blood. In order to reconcile sinful man with perfect God. For all of eternity. Once and for all. Do I actually believe that that has power to change you? 
And have you experienced that changing power? Tangibly, have you experienced it? Do you even believe that change is needed? The gospel, Romans 1, tells us is the power of God and the salvation. Meaning the eternality of God, the magnitude of God that cannot be constrained by anything. All his power is represented in the work of Jesus Christ to change people who are dead in their sins to eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that power to change is rooted in the faithfulness of God. Meaning... He will always and only save by Christ because that's the way he's determined. And that's good news for us as Christians. The fact that we don't have to wake up Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and wonder, is there a new way today that I'm going to be saved from my sin? Is there something else I didn't do yesterday that I need to do today? No. Once and for all, fixed in the heavens for eternity is the work of Jesus Christ. And for those that are his, that will never change. The gospel that has the power to change is rooted in the faithfulness of God. Or we could put it another way. There is no hypocrisy in God. He never says, be saved through Jesus Christ, repent and believe and you shall be saved, and then turns around and does something else. He is always eternally faithful to his word. And we are not. And yet, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ has the ability to transform us to be more like him on a daily basis. And that is wonderful news. The fact that you and I can wake up tomorrow and by the power of God through his Holy Spirit, be more like Jesus Christ. That is, we can be more faithful to our word and our actions reflecting what we're saying than we were today. That, that's just amazing. You can be changed, and you are, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You are being changed. Christians live in the light and under the influence of the changing power of the gospel. That is, the lives of Christians are an adornment to the gospel. The lives of Christians are the ornaments on the Christmas tree. Do you see the picture there? You put the Christmas tree up and it's just green, and then you begin putting things on it. And it, the, the things on it make the tree beautiful. It, it, it helps you to see the beauty of the tree that you didn't see before. And so when we see a life changed by the power of Jesus Christ, where they go from whatever they were before to where they are now, where they go from addicted to pornography and they're addicted to drugs and they're addicted to their own selfishness and they're addicted to their job and all of these things and they become those who once hated God and now love God and hate these things, it, it, it helps us to see, wow, that tree, that truth is amazing. And so then you can walk around the tree, right? And you see other Christians hung on different places and you, you ask them, what is your testimony? What has God done in your life? And they'll tell you, well, I was once lost and now I'm found. I was struggling with this sin and now I'm doing this. And we, we stand back yet again and we marvel at the power 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change. Now, why all of this as introduction? Well, let's look at our text this morning. We're looking at deacons. And what I want you to notice is right after verse 13 is, what do you know? Verse 14. 14 through 16 is what's coming next week. And 14 through 16 is the center of the book. And it's more than just the center of the book by way of uh, writing, center of the book from a, 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 a literature standpoint, but it's actually the heart of the book in terms of its message. Look with me there. Verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is, in many ways, we've said it a number of different ways, but one of them being sound doctrine produces sound living. This is one of the, this is the main thrust of why Paul is writing to young Timothy and the Ephesian church is to say, I want you to know what the church should look like, how it should behave, how it should be ordered. Why? Because I want the gospel to be well adorned. I want the world to see the magnificence of the changing power of Jesus Christ. I want there to be no hypocrisy between the message and the actual ministry of the lives of the people represented within the church. And he's speaking more, obviously, than just a church service. We know this. He's speaking about the fact that We will exit this building and we are the church and that doesn't change whether or not we're in the building or not. And it looks different here, certainly. But we go and we want to be those who are ministers of the mercy of God. We're messengers of the changing power of Jesus Christ. And certainly we understand that in chapter 3, 8 through 13, that he's speaking, his aim is to speaking to deacons who are official ministers of mercy from the church. But the goal of why he's talking about deacons as elders is to, in a sense, say sound doctrine has to produce sound living. And if these men, remember we looked at in chapter one, are false teachers, they won't have the sound living that they need to have. Meaning it should be pointing to the fact that they don't have sound doctrine. Therefore, if these deacons are to be official ministers of God's mercy, official ministers of the church, and we we recognize the mercy of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and all its magnificence, then we cannot look lightly upon these men, as we talked about last week. These are not second-class officials of the church. These aren't, this isn't the B team to the A team. Uh, this isn't the on-ramp to eldership. These men are gifted by God for this service, and Therefore, in their gifting, they must be those who are modeling sound living because of the sound doctrine. Well, the gospel not only um, changes us, it also takes the qualifications that are described in 8 through 13 that are to be those of, that are gifted to serve the church in an official capacity. And it gives us the ability for all of us as Christians uh, to have this type of character. So we could say this morning in a sentence summarizing 8 through 13, that faithful Christians living in submission to the power of the gospel advance the good standing of the church of Jesus Christ in the community. Now that's fairly simple, but it's true. 
Faithful Christians living in submission to the power of the gospel advance the good standing of the church and Jesus Christ in the community. Now, it's simple, but it's profound in the sense that this is what does not happen. This is why the church is oftentimes criticized for its hypocrisy. Is we are not being faithful Christians submitting ourselves to the power of the gospel outside of the pew as a whole. And therefore, we don't advance the good standing of the church. We actually tear it down. And so we must understand, and yet again, allowing the word of God to renew our minds and change the way we think, that we have to be those faithful Christians submitted to the power of the gospel outside the pew in order to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. And we're not advancing some simple cause. We're advancing the only cause that actually has power to change. Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, self-help books, all of these things don't truly have the power to change for eternity. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ has that say. Well, look with me, just stare at the passage for a moment with me, verse 8 through 13. Let me just show you some structure here. Verse 8, we'll notice that deacons are going to be defined by their character. Their character, and you'll notice, we'll look at this in a minute more closely, that there's one positive and then there's three negatives, or it's put in the negative. If you look with me at verse 9, you'll notice that they should also be defined by their doctrine. In verse 10, you're going to notice that they will have a public witness. Verse 11 and 12, you'll notice that they must... Be qualified not only in their character and doctrine and public witness, but also their private life as it is seen in their marriage and family. Verse 11 and 12. And finally, we'll look at verse 13. The blessings and even godly incentives of being a deacon. Let's look at verse 8, the character of a deacon. I'm going to flow through these fairly quickly. And the reason why is because you'll notice... The word likewise, deacons likewise must be dignified. Deacons also must be dignified. In the sense that the qualifications for elder are not mirrored in a deacon, but they're similar. Deacons should be dignified and so should be an elder. Deacons should not be double-tongued and so should an elder, etc., etc. So we've looked at what it means to be an elder, and we won't spend a lot of time, but we will note some of these things. So deacons should be dignified in the sense that they should be well respected. You should be able to look at a man and say, That is a Christian man. And I've been around him in his home, and I've been in his public workspace with him, and I've been in his been in a church with him and I've had conversations with him and that man I respect as a godly Christian man. He must be dignified. That's the positive. And then we're, we have three attributes put in, in the negative sense. And if we were going to take those three and, and summarize them into a positive note, it would be that deacons should be self-controlled. In the sense that they're going to be self-controlled in their speech They're going to be self-controlled in their drink. And they're going to be self-controlled in their view of money. We can think of how these things, if a a man was to be double-tongued, meaning he's hypocritical, he's saying one thing over here and then he's saying something else over here. 
Or he was a man who was a drunkard. He was addicted to much wine. Or he was a man who was constantly greedy for money. And and even using his service in the church as a deacon to advance his own pocketbook. You could see how that would be hypocritical. We think of uh, the, the story in the book of Acts of Ananias and Sapphira. A husband and wife who were, by all understanding of the book of Acts, they were in the church, they seemed to be committed to the church, and yet they were caught up in a desire to be approved by men. They were hypocritical. They sold some property, and they did one thing, and they said another. And therefore, they were both disciplined to the point of death. God does not view sin lightly and he certainly doesn't view hypocrisy lightly and this is what it ended up happening. So their character, they must be those who have no hypocrisy. Their private life, their their speech, their drink, their view of money will be under will be will be controlled. They will have self-control. Well, then they move to their doctrine, verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now Paul uses this word mystery. A couple of different times. You'll probably have remembered it in Ephesians. You'll also see it. In in verse 16. Great indeed we confess. Is the mystery of godliness. It's a word that Paul oftentimes uses. And what he's simply saying is. It's the depth. Of the truths of the faith. They're so wonderful. They're so vast. They're hard to comprehend. The, the deacon must be a man who knows and holds firm to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not wishy-washy on the, on the important doctrines of scripture. Now we oftentimes think, I think, wrongly, that the elder is the one who is well-versed in doctrine and the deacon's the one who's coming along in his understanding of doctrine, but has a ways to go. And that's not what Paul says at all. Because the deacon is an official minister of the church. And they don't have to teach. They don't have that qualification. But they will articulate truth. You can imagine a deacon going to someone's home. They're distraught. Maybe they've, uh, their finances are not where it needs to be. They're behind in their rent. Creditors are calling. People are knocking on their door, asking for money. And this person is a mess. Emotionally. Well, the deacon just can't sit there and pat them on the back and say, you know, sunshine and roses, smile well. He is going to minister something from the word of God to them. He should. Maybe about the sovereignty of God, maybe about the love of God, maybe about the care of God, maybe about the understanding of God. I don't know what it would be. But he is going to minister something and it needs to be true and sound doctrine. It cannot be that which is wishy-washy. And he must be convinced that that doctrine is true and should be ministered to that person in their need. Or as the church pastor John Calvin said. They should be well instructed in the faith. So as not to be ignorant of anything which is necessary for Christians to know. That's pretty good. They are not to be ignorant of anything which is necessary for Christians to know. They know doctrine. They don't may, may not know the depth of doctrine as others do. But they hold firm to the Sound doctrine of the church with a clear conscience. Meaning they're, they're not, they're not wishy-washy on this. Their behavior must then accord with their faith. Still in verse 10. 
excuse me, verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. We've already come off their character. Their character is going to be reflected, is going to be a reflection of their faith. Now, I think it's important for us to stop at verse 9 and just pause for a second and consider the fact that the character of a deacon, which we should all aspire to, men, women, boy, girl, is to be a character that comes from a sound faith. I mean, let's not slide into this being a list of, okay, now, how are you doing on double-tongued? Ah, off. Or, how are you doing on whatever it might be? Now, that's important. We use these things to test. But this is not the, the, this is not the, the list that we must check off in order to be approved by God. In fact, I would say you have no ability in and of yourselves to in any way model the characteristics of this type of person without the righteousness of Christ. The imputed righteousness of Christ is the only means to a life marked by any good character of any kind, much less the description of men who serve the church or their wives. So we we have no ability within ourselves, outside of the sound faith, outside of the changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to manifest these type of characteristics. And so a a deacon is going to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, understanding that it is the faith that drives his character, that drives his home life, that drives his private life. Sound doctrine produces sound living. So if a man is not convinced of sound doctrine, of course his private life is not going to reflect what he's articulating because he's not convinced that it's actually true. He's not submitted, submitted himself to it. Now, certainly we have to ask the question to all of us today, speaking not to believers in Jesus Christ, but to unbelievers. We recognize that there is no one good, no, not one. Are you seeking to see things like this and think, well, if I could just control my drink better or speak to my wife more kindly or speak to my brother or sister or my friends more kindly or, or, or be less hypocritical? be more transparent, whatever, that I'm going to then be approved by God. The answer is no, you won't be. Because there's nothing good in you that can manifest the approval of God. It has to be something outside of you. It has to be an alien, a foreign truth. And that is the righteousness of God, grant the righteousness of Christ granted to you in exchange for your sin and all your ungoodness. Yes, that's not a word. But it gets the point. And what you get is not only your sin taken away, you get the perfection of Christ that results in eternal life in heaven. Now let's just talk about heaven for a moment. It's a wonderful place filled with glory and grace, as the song goes. But have you, as a Christian, contemplated heaven lately? Have you thought about it? This is your eternal home. I don't know about you, but when my wife and I lived in 500 square feet, my wife thought about another home. (laughs) The home we were not in at that time. This is not your home. Have you thought about your home to come eternally? And what is going to be there? The delight that is going to be there. I'm continually amazed by the fact that I'm going to have a new body. And I'm really grateful for it. 
But I'm going to I'm going to have to have you're going to have to have a new body in order to be able to experience the capacity of joy that is in heaven. Your current physical body, your heart, physical heart cannot endure the joy in its imperfect state now that will be in heaven for eternity. It will explode. Roger Bannister died yesterday. He was the first man to run under the four-minute mile in the 1950s. He died at 88. And when he ran that first sub-four-minute mile, he conquered at that time what was thought to be the physical limits of the human body. Everyone, doctors included, thought when he crosses that line three minutes and whatever seconds, he will die because his heart will explode. And there are less now who have run the four-minute mile under four minutes, under the mile under four minutes than have climbed Mount Everest. More have climbed Everest than run under four minutes in the mile. But the human body couldn't take that. The human body cannot take for a second the joy of heaven unless it's perfect. And, and, and that's just one thing. To be in heaven and to not have any desire to sin... To not have one wrong thought go through your mind, that alone is heaven for me. That I won't have to set my mind on things above, because I will be above. And I'll have a mind who desires and delights in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's think on heaven more. And if you are not saved, then think about heaven and whether or not you will be there. Because my ability to enter those gates are not, (laughs) Lord knows, is not of my own Ability. It's certainly not because I'm in some way modeling what is characterized in 8 through 13. That's not my reason. It's by the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been granted to me. And I know it has because he's given me the ability to respond in repentance and faith. Have you responded in faith and repentance to the work of Jesus Christ? If you have, oh, delight in heaven. Let's look at the public witness, verse 10. Slow down. Let's speed up a little bit. Verse 10. Public witness. Also, notice that word, let them also be tested first. And I take that to mean not just deacons should be tested, but also elders should be tested. There's no specific testing given in scripture for these men. But certainly we know they should stand the test of time. Acts chapter 6. They're in the church long enough and, and, and have been faithful enough that the church sees them, recognizes them, knows them. And then they're tested by not only the elders, but also by the congregation. Look at their marriage and family, verse 11 and 12. First of all, verse 11 has a couple of different views. I'll tell you the one I hold to. It says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Well, that word wives can be translated in the Greek also women, so some hold to the fact that women likewise must be dignified in the sense that women are an official role of the church. I mean, deaconesses, there's women deacons and male deacons. I don't hold to that view. I hold to the fact that they're speaking about wives of deacons, but there's three, at least three different views. One is deaconesses, women deacons. Another is wives of deacons. And another still is assistant to deacons. Well, I kind of pair two of those. I, I think wives assist their husbands in the work of being a deacon. It's not an official role, but 
if the wife of a man is not in similar godliness to himself, he will destroy the ministry of that man. Women, you're very important here. Notice that verse 11 really reflects and mirrors verse 8. Likewise must be dignified, verse 8, deacons must be dignified. Not slanders, meaning their, their tongue, they're not malicious gossips. Deacons are not to be double-tongued. Sober-minded, addicted to much wine, faithful in all things, self-controlled. They're going to be, it's go, they're, they're going to be godly women. Scripture speaks of this. Proverbs 31.30 Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs 31.23 Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders, sits among the leaders of the land. The reason the husband is known is because of the godliness of that woman. Titus 2, verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Women are to teach as well. Notice it says, they are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Meaning, a woman who is allowing her life to be an example of the changing power of Jesus Christ is going to adorn the gospel. That the word of God may not be reviled. 1 Peter 3, 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Which is in God's sight very precious. Well verse 12. They should be the husband of one wife. Managing their children and their own households well. Men. The home is the proving ground for public ministry. The home is the proving ground of public ministry. And men, we should be very careful what's happening in our home. Because our children, the day will come when our children will expose the faith or faithlessness of the private lives of our home, in our home. Our children will expose to some extent, shape or form, what is actually happening and happened in our home while they were growing up. Men, we should, we should bear that weight. We can hide it well now. But the four-year-old will become 44, right? And that, in a sense, is going to bear out the truth of what's happening within the home. That's what Paul is speaking about here. Verse 13, then. Finally, the blessings and incentives. Blessings and incentives. Well, verse 13, if you're noticing it, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith. That is in Christ Jesus. And this is the this is the bookend. This is the other end of the shelf. And the beginning of the shelf was verse 1 of chapter 3. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing. That kind of brings all this truth together in a nice little package. And you'll notice verse 13, these men are to be held in high honor. They serve well as deacons gain a good standing. Along with the elders, they're respected. They're appreciated from the church. They're a blessing to the church and the church recognizes this. And they also gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Notice this is a godly incentive. There are such things as godly incentives. God says, men, do this and this is something that you're going to get out of this. And one of the things is, you're going to be witness to the gospel-changing power up close. Deacons who are ministers of mercy on an official capacity 
from the church get an up-close, week-by-week view of the fact that God changes people. Because why? They're working with people on a regular basis. That's what it says. And also, great confidence. Your confidence, men, will grow in the service of being a deacon. Now, certainly, we also know that as we live our lives faithfully, faithful Christians living in the submission to the power of the gospel, we have our confidence grow in the faith because we're being people who live with other people. And as we are living in submission to the power of the gospel, living in submission to the truth of God's word, we see God changing people and our confidence grows in the fact that he's done that to us. So we have to be those who are with other people. We could summarize the the entirety of this passage in another way. The gospel has to be visible to the world. It has to be visible to the world. It's too precious to not be visible to the world. And Paul wants the way that the church is ordered, the way that the church behaves, in an official capacity, elders and deacons, to be visible to the world. Now what's some application for us this morning? Well, first an implication, and the implication of the gospel is that the regenerated Christian will ever will be ever changing by the power of God to be more like Christ, to be more faithful to God the Father. That is the implication of the gospel, that if you're a Christian, you will always be changing. God is going to do that work in and through you. But then there's application that comes from such truth. And that is, can you and those around you see that change is occurring? It's been said before, Christianity is deeply personal, but it is never private. It's constantly on display. Can those around you see that you're being changed? Now, let's be careful here. There there needs to be a warning in the sense that that question should not incite hypocritical thoughts in the the sense that, well, if I can just sort of shape up, they're going to see that I'm looking. No, 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 no. Be approved to God first. Look to be approved by God first, not men. And so what they may see is more of your sin and how you're responding to it than the fact that you may have it all together. The last two weeks, it is as if the Lord very graciously has been answering my prayer of continuing to transform me and the way I'm describing it is he's peeling my onion of pride. And it stinks and it's nasty. But it can be easily observed by anyone close because they start getting tears. And I've had to call people and ask them to forgive me for my sin. I would rather call them and say, hey, I just want to let you know I was thinking about the word of God this morning and I was praying about you and I just had this magnificent thought and really thought you should have it. No, what they're seeing is that I'm trying to get to wretch status. Are people seeing that? I don't want to, I'm not putting myself on a uh, public display in order for you to look to that. I'm just simply saying that they're probably going to see what you don't want them to see, which is your sin. But are they seeing you respond correctly to it? Are you fighting your sin? Do they recognize that? What about your public witness? 
Do your employees, do your fellow employees, would they be able to say the same of you that we can say about you? Men, have, has God gifted you to serve and you're refusing to serve in the church? Young men, you need to look to this passage as an example of the type of man you should be. You should be those that are serving. You should be those that are self-controlled in your speech. Men, young men, listen. We love to, to promote ourselves. And man, I lifted this much weight and ran this fast and did that. No, no. Be self-controlled in your speech. Don't do that. Don't point people to yourself. Point people to Christ. Young women, older women, can verse 11 be said about you? Is this a verse that can be said of your character? You, you, you're, you're in many ways, wives, you, you're a linchpin. You pull that pin and this, that your, your husband can't serve as a deacon. And you don't do so in order to, just to be able to say my husband's gonna be able to, no, you you get an opportunity to serve. I, I think women, uh, wives of deacons uh, do an immense service in helping their husband do work that he, he he's not going to be able to do. They can, she can assist with women the way he can't assist. She can strengthen him. They're working as a team here. And so in some ways we have to ask the question of women, do you, do you want to serve in that capacity alongside your husband? Lastly, who can you be a faithful witness to with the gospel of Jesus Christ this week? Or let's put it in a, in a more practical way. What, are, are there two people, just two, two people in your life that you could invite to church and that you could be praying for an opportunity to share the gospel? Just two. Don't know the Lord. Next door neighbor. Family, friend. Someone that you regularly see that you could just invite to church and you could be praying about an opportunity to share the gospel. Just begin there. That's a good place to be a faithful witness. It's just two people. And then ask somebody else in the church. Hey, these are my two people, Fred and Joy. Would you pray for Fred and Joy? I'm, I'm wanting to be faithful with them this week. And I've not been as, what, as much as I ought to, but help me. Pray with me for Fred and Joy or whatever the other two people are. Let's be faithful to be those who are uh, a faithful witness in our community. Faithful Christians living in submission to the power of the gospel, advance the good standing of the church of Jesus Christ in the community. Brothers and sisters, we should be with great joy delighting in the work of Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who's continually transforming us from being hypocritical to less hypocritical, to be more faithful like he is faithful. But then let's let's respond to the power of that ability. Let's respond to the power of the Holy Spirit that is changing us and join with that work more faithfully. And trust him to do great and glorious things for his, for his eternal glory. And we get to share and, and be a part of that. Let's pray. Brothers, Father, we thank you for these brothers and sisters. Uh, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the way it, it pierces my soul. And I pray that it does for them as well. Father, I, th- I thank you for the fact that You've saved us. You've called us out of darkness into eternal light. And I thank you, Father, for the way that your Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, changes our desires, changes our joys, changes our habits, changes our pride.
Father, you are good and faithful to us. You love us with an everlasting love. You are the best father. You are the father of fathers. And and you care for us as a father cares for his children. And we thank you for continuing to train us and, and mold us and shape us in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We thank you, Father, for the example that you have given us in our elder brother, Christ. And we ask that you would help us, even this week, by the power of your Holy Spirit, for your glory alone, to be faithful as you are faithful. To be faithful to repent, if necessary. And to be faithful to love you out of a great delight that you faithfully love us for all of eternity. We ask these things in the precious and holy name of Christ. Amen.